So Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read a few verses if you've got a Bible and you like to follow me, whether it's a, a physical Bible or whether it's on an app, it's, it's great to read the Word of God together. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church which is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, just as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you eagerly await the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I I think there's some here who need to hear that this morning. God is faithful. He has called you. He is committed to you. He will see you through whatever you are going through at this moment in time. Amen? Come on, you can do better than that. Amen? That's better. Yeah, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you that, my brothers and sisters, my close people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm with Paul and I'm with Apollos or I'm with Cephas or even I am with Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. But I did baptize the household of Stephanus also, and beyond that I do not know if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be of no effect. So, we've got, an, oh, oh, <laughs> we've got a staggering amount in just those few verses, but we're actually looking at chapter 1 and chapter 2, and actually just a little bit further as well, because the subject goes a bit beyond that. So I've titled it this morning, one pe- Many People, One Body. Many People, One Body. And the background of this particular situation is in Corinth, and um, there we go, there's a, a, zoo, a map of uh, the Mediterranean, and Corinth is just above Achaia there. Um, we're moving a little bit closer, it gives you a, an idea, and we're just going a little bit more, and there's Corinth sitting on that narrow strip of land, and uh, Corinth had two ports to it, uh, one on either side of that narrow strip, and so it, it was a vibrant place, much like any city today, it was a vibrant place, full of life, full of energy of all kinds. And uh, it was an international trading place. The Isthmian Games were, that took place there every couple of years. 
There were merchants, there were tourists. It was upwardly mobile. It was truly cosmopolitan in every sense of the word. Uh, there was a sense of patron-client relationships in this place that could create bonds that, of, of loyalty that would last generations. And there's an undercurrent of this in, in Paul's writings to the churches. The giving of patronages that left the people, the city, with an indebtedness usually paid back in honours uh, being granted. Sounds very similar to the day and age in which we live, doesn't it? It was a cauldron also of contrasting and conflicting ideas, both religious and philosophical, much, again, like the world in which we live in. It was a place of great rhetoric. They loved great speeches. They loved great debates, great displays of speech that were more concerned, in effect, with, with the ideas of applause and, and power and influence. Again, much like we can see on the media today. Doesn't change, does it, the world we live in? Uh, it was an idolatrous place as well. There was a temple there up on the hill, uh, and there, were, there was a whole lot of idolatry that was going on, not only relating to Corinth itself, but those who were coming into the place. And uh, there was a lot of immorality as well. It abounded in it. And this is where Paul went to, to plant this church. And he planted it there on his second journey, which you can read about in Acts chapter 18, and, and he stayed there for 18 months. Now, Paul planted this church, and he then moved on, as he did after 18 months, and, and uh, he has written to them once before. There's something about this church, the chaos, the nature of it, that he's written to them once before, and that letter has been lost. And, and, and now he's writing to them again, and the reason for this letter is that while he's in Ephesus, he has heard from Chloe's household, a, a list of the problems at Corinth. You can read that in 1 verse 11. And then later on, he, he lists uh, uh, various questions that have been posed to him in chapter 7 and verse 1. And so he's writing back to deal with Chloe's household, what they've been saying, and also this letter that has been written to him with these various questions relating to the faith and their practice of it. And so he writes back about 55 AD, or maybe a little bit earlier anticipating that he will visit them later in the year, as was his custom. And when you go through this book, I mean, it's a fascinating book. And um, there are so many issues going on within it. You've got divisions. You've got the nature of true wisdom. You've got carnal living. You've got the nature and authority of apostles. You've got sexual immorality. You have them uh, going to court against one another. You have marriage problems. There's a question about foods that are offered to idols, of abuse at the Lord's Supper, of the Lord's Supper, there's elitism, there's the abuse of spiritual gifts, the meetings are somewhat chaotic, and there's doctrinal aberration. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's quite a church, isn't it? And yet the amazing thing is that I want you to notice right here at, this, at the beginning that he thanks God for them. The church was in a mess, yet he thanks God for them, and he speaks of the grace of God that has been given to them in Christ Jesus, and that they do not lack any spiritual gift. And I just want to read that there, because it's so important to hear that. Because sometimes we can get lost in the mire of everything that is going on and, and lose sight of the grace of God. And in the midst of all that is going on, in the midst of the, the challenging nature of this church, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. So he's not saying that they're 
that the way they're behaving is denying the grace of God as if they had not experienced it. They have experienced the grace of God. They have encountered God in Jesus Christ, and his grace is evident amongst them. But he doesn't mean that they've got everything right. But he goes on saying, and in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge, just as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, listen to this, who will also confirm you to the end. That's saying something when you consider the whole context of this book and the problems that are going on there. Yes, God has called you in Christ. You have experienced his grace. He he has distributed his gifts amongst you. God is at work in your midst, but you're a mess, but God will confirm you to the end. That's hope, isn't it? That's some hope that is written in there. And I want to say two things here with regard to this, that God is bigger than all of our failings. Amen? God is bigger than all of our failings. Turn to the person next to you and tell them, look them in the eye and say, God is bigger than all your failings. Now turn to them again and say as if you mean it. Especially if it's your husband or your wife. God is bigger than all your failings. Hallelujah. Yeah? But that does not excuse them. Okay? That does not excuse them. And secondly, God's purposes cannot await our entire sanctification. Do you understand that? God's purpose cannot await yours and mine entire sanctification. Turn to the person next to you and say, God's purpose cannot await your entire sanctification. (laughs) That means, be encouraged, God can use you with all that's going on in your life at this moment in time. Yeah? Yeah? Because his grace is magnificent, it's glorious. That doesn't excuse our failings, etc. But God's grace is that magnificent, and his purposes cannot await your perfection. Isn't that right? Because if they had to await your perfection, none of us would be sitting here. Because none of God's people have ever been perfect. We're in the process of not only being saved, but being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Let me tell you a little testimony. Um, After I preached the other Sunday, which was about three, four weeks ago, uh, I've had a niggling thing about this particular thing that was going on in my my life. And uh, uh, I grew up on the news, and uh, I live on the news in some measure, you know? And uh, as a Christian leader, I believe that it's right that we are aware of what's going on in our world. And that was another reason for keeping up with the news. So uh, when I grew up as a boy, we watched the news and we watched documentaries, nothing else. That was my diet of television, okay? And uh, I've lived on the news and so on. So I, I, bec- I realized I've become a bit of a news addict. You know, I just, I read the news in the morning while I'm having breakfast. I'd check it now and again through the day. If something crops up, I'd look at it lunchtime. I'd look at it, you know, at tea time and so on and go and ask Debbie. She will tell you when she came and lived with us for, you know, a year over, over COVID, you know. And, and so, I, you know, I, I, became, I, I was becoming a news addict. And then I went home the other Sunday and I started reading a book. And it wasn't a Christian book. And bang, 
God got me right between the eyes, you know. And, and I just was so convicted. Do you know what? I haven't watched the news since. I don't read it every week. I now discern what the best time to read it, catch up on it, and so on. Do you know what? It's made a difference. Yeah? Yeah, I've got more space in my head. I'm not carrying the whole world's problems, and neither you meant to either. And it may be there's a word here for somebody this morning, you need to turn the news off. Stop following the little clickbaits here and there that take you on to the next thing, and then you've got to go back and so on. It consumes your brain. It puts weights on you that you were never designed to carry. Yes, don't bury your head in the sand. We are meant to know what's going on in the world, and there's ways of doing that. And that's one of the things that God has transformed me in, just like, and the difference is made. Just that difference. And so you come to this letter, and this is no soft, mild manner pastoral letter, no easy going letter, no not kind of lovey dovey, nicey nicey kind of thing. Yes, it's full of love, it's full of grace. But this letter is written with apostolic authority, it's, and there's a combative nature about Paul's writing as he seeks to bring theological and pastoral correction. There's also almost, almost a sense of exasperation with them when you kind of read some of the stuff that's in there. Uh, and uh, though he speaks apostolically, he also speaks to them as a brother, sharing life with them. And the overwhelming theme in, the, in this book is, is unity, being one body in Christ. And this, this has to be the foundational verse. I wonder if we can read this together. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Let's read it once more. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. I want to recommend you take away that verse and you commit it to your memory this week. You take it away, you meditate on it. You take it away, you pray on it, etc. You ask God to speak to you through it. But let me just note one or two things with regard to what's going on here. The big issue, the big issue number one here is that they are behaving like the world. Paul lays it out in verses 10 to 17 of that chapter. He says, now, uh, from, from verse 11, I've, I've been informed concerning you, my brothers and sisters, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. And actually, if you go elsewhere in the book, you'll find that there's jealousy and strife and all sorts of stuff just going on amongst them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I mean this, that each one of you saying, I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Cephas, or I'm with Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized? into the name of Paul. So there, were, there was quarrels, there was jealousy, there was strife, there was, there was arrogance, there was divisions. And that has the potential to, to destroy the work of God, to destroy the church. And it also means, therefore, that their witness uh, is affected. The impact of the gospel will be affected. As people look on and say, well, hang on a minute, I thought you believed in Jesus, I thought he saved you, I thought he was transforming your lives, and yet your lives are no different to ours. And the focus is on personalities, there's a, there's a cult of celebrity. It wasn't so much about 
doctrine as these particular personalities that was creating splits and cliques. They were boasting in people, in personalities. There was a, the, the, that whole aspect of prominence through their particular wisdom, as if they had some higher wisdom than Paul, even than Paul knew better than others. And there were power plays that were going on with all of this. The cliques were in danger of becoming power bases that divide one from another. You know, one of the most sad and sobering facts of church history, and I love reading church history, is that the division that exists when you read church history, and most of those divisions are the result of personalities, prominence, and power plays rather than fundamental theological differences that really matter. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Big issue number two, their lives were testifying against the, the very nature and the wisdom of the cross. Rhetorically, Paul asks, has Christ been divided? It seems like a strange question, doesn't it? But in essence, he's saying, look, if this is the way you're behaving, you're suggesting that Christ himself is divided. And that's just not the way it is. Their manner of life is contrary to Christ who emptied himself of his divine rights, took on the form of a, a servant, was made in the likeness of human flesh, flesh just like ours, and humbled himself to the point of death, death thereby breaking down every wall of petition. Hallelujah. But they were erecting those petitions once again. They were creating those false divisions once again. And so Paul has to say to them, this is not the way it should be. This is not how it is in Christ Jesus. To that end, he says, he's sending them Timothy to remind them of my ways which are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17. And so Paul appeals to them. He urges them. He says, I urge you by the name that you all agree. So he, he, you, you need to catch what, what is going on here, the, the urgency that Paul feels that he has to write to them, and he will visit them later in the year. He is concerned about them and the impact these, these uh, following people in a particular way could have. So this is no take it or leave it kind of advice. His desire was to restore them to a common mindset and a common purpose to God's original intention in every sphere of life. Hallelujah. And so, throughout his letter, Paul drills home to them the unity that is found in Christ. And ten times in ten verses, he, he references the name of Christ. What it is to, to be in Christ is, is to be part of the, the new creation. The old has been judged in Christ, and now there is a new creation demonstrating a radically new existence. They are his people. They belong to him. Their behavior has a knock-on effect of the image of Christ in the world at large. And don't we know that sometimes when we see the media? He goes on to speak of it through the cross, in being a temple, of being of one loaf, of gathering around a communion table, the corporate nature, nature of worship, the mutuality of male and female, the nature of the church as a body and the gifts that come through the one spirit and the unity and the harmony of the Trinity of the Godhead, Father, 
Son, and Holy Spirit. He packs an awful lot in. And this is a truly Trinitarian letter, probably after John, the most Trinitarian letter in the Scriptures. It's full of Trinitarian references, and I would encourage you as you you read this book to note those Trinitarian references, because we believe in one God, don't we, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal and co-eternal from eternity to eternity, a blessed community of love, a happy community of loving relationship. And so in in these first two chapters, you, you have... In verses, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, you have reference to the, the cross of Christ. And boy, we could preach a whole sermon on this, the nature of it. You know, it is foolishness to the world to, to imagine that people could be saved in this way and restored to a right relationship with God. It, it seems like a crazy kind of wisdom. It is contrary to the world's wisdom. So we have the, the reference there to the Son of God and to the cross of Christ. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to those who are being saved it is the power of God amen are you one of those this morning are you one of those this morning oh there's one are you one of those this morning yes yes to those who are being saved the word of the cross is the power of God hallelujah and then Secondly, we have the Father's calling in chapter 1, verses 26 to to 31. And we read there how he says, Consider your calling, brothers and sisters, sisters, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And the insignificance of the things and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no human may boast before God. But it is due to him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So we don't boast in Paul, in Apollos, in Cephas. We don't boast in Graham or Richard or or Terry, or whoever. Our boast is in Jesus. Amen? Our boast is in him. And he is the one who has called us by his marvelous grace, and it's not conditionable, not conditioned on anything in us at all. Amen? It wasn't that God looked at you and thought, she's a good girl. He's a good guy. I think I'll have them in my kingdom. It wasn't like that at all. He looked at us and saw us lost and dead in our trespasses and sins, and his love and his mercy and grace, he calls us through Jesus. He says, come, come, come. And then thirdly, we see the Spirit's power and illumination. We haven't got time to read all of those verses, but... In chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, he, he makes it very clear this is not through human wisdom, this is not through clever minds, but it's through the, the illumination, the revelation of the Holy Spirit and the power of God that you are part of his church, of his family. And so the wisdom of God is demonstrated through the, the cross, the Father's calling, the Spirit's enlightening and enabling. And it cuts underneath and pulls away the, the rug of pretentiousness and posturing 
of personality cults. It's a staggering message, isn't it? I mean, you, you kind of look at it and you want to go, wow, wow. And if we had time here, we could drill all sorts of scenes into the word of God and find riches to encourage our souls. And I want to encourage you to go away and read those first few chapters. And really, the subject of unity runs right the way through to the end of, uh, of um, chapter 3 and maybe even chapter 4, the whole aspect of, of this aspect of divisioning and unity in Christ. It's not found in... It's all looking the same, in all thinking, of us all thinking the same. It doesn't mean that there will be differences of opinion, no differences of opinion whatsoever. But it does mean that we find unity in Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Unity is found in conformity to Christ and the way of the cross. But our time has gone, and, and I just want to make some very brief applications here. Because this is so powerful. At its most basic level... Can I encourage you to resolve to have nothing between you and another brother or sister in Christ? Nothing, absolutely nothing. Because the devil gets in in small ways, doesn't he? And those ways trip us up. And they rob us of the present experience of God's grace when we start to behave in human ways. That's why the table is so precious and why it says there in 1 Corinthians that when you come to that table, if there's anything there that needs dealing with, deal with it. Discern the one body of Christ. <coughs> Maintain that one body by putting right anything that is wrong. And if you can't do it in the moment, to, to, to make that decision to do it so that there's nothing between you and another brother or sister in Christ. Can I encourage you not to focus on personalities? You know, the internet is full of them, and one of the things I have loved in reading about the, the, the revival that kicked off in Asbury, and just reading again a, a report on it last night, it's the staggering nature of the grace and humility of those who oversaw it. There were those who wanted to step into it, to preach on those who wanted to step into it to lead worship, and they said no. And the staggering nature of that move was filled with such humility and grace. I think we have a lot to learn from it. I'd encourage you to go away and read about it. So don't focus on personalities. Christ is the foundation. We are the servants of Christ, and God is the one who ultimately gives the increase. Amen? You know, we just have the privilege of being servants, of being enabled by his spirit to serve his purposes in the earth. What a privilege that is, isn't it? But it can so easily be abused. Beware of cliques. You know, nobody sets out to form a clique intentionally. They happen over time. And you don't realize it until it's there. So beware of cliques. And then in doctrine, there are things that are fundamental, that are absolutely, you know, you, you, you can't change from that particular point. It is fundamental to 
to the Christian life and to the nature of the church, there are fundamental doctrines, but there are many secondary things that we have to agree to disagree on. People are sometimes surprised when they, they say to me, they say, have you ever changed your mind on anything over the years with regard to doctrine? I say, yeah. They kind of think, really? It sounds a little bit worrying, but it's part of growth, how we understand and we, we may learn some things in the beginning, but as we go on and we explore the text more, we find that maybe we didn't understand that correctly. And lastly, I want to say this. And I think there's something that Paul holds out so strongly is let's keep going the way of the cross. Keep going the way of the cross. To learn to what it is to be people of the cross and serve him through the power of his spirit. There are times when we have to get on our knees and say, here I am, Lord, yet again. Times when we say, God, would you break this in me that I might be able to serve you more effectively. It's not about me, it's about you, Lord. Going the way of the cross. And I'd encourage you just to read those first two chapters. And if you have time too, to read the whole book and just allow it to speak to you and allow the Holy Spirit just to speak to you. Because God is about restoration, isn't he? It's about renewal is about fulfilling his purposes in the new creation of the earth. And this is how Paul is writing to them in Corinth. He wants to get them back on track. Yes, God is blessing. Yes, God is moving. But God could do a whole lot more if only they realized what was going on, listened to what God was saying, and responded to what God was saying. His purposes would be unleashed in an ever greater way. Amen? Amen. Let's stand, shall we, and read this text one more time, shall we? Let's read together then, shall we? Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment.